Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, threats to journalism. There's been a lot of attention to um, threats that journalists are under in the U.S. from Trump and from Twitter and from a lot of other things. This week, though, we're going to focus on threats to journalism in another part of the world, in Kashmir. Um, we're 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 going to hear about the case of Shujat Bukhari, who's the editor of Rising Kashmir, which is a leading newspaper in the area, and the um, and his assassination and what that means for journalism there and more broadly in India. We're joined by Alia Iftikhar, who's with the Committee to Protect Journalists, who wrote a terrific piece about Bukhari's murder that went up this week in CJR and um, really goes through a lot of detail about how it happened, how it was investigated, and what it means for journalism going forward. Alia, welcome. What, what is your job at CPJ? So I'm the Asia researcher for CPJ. CPJ, as all of you know, is the Committee to Protect Journalists, a longtime uh, partner of CJR and, and the sort of best advocate and reporting source on what's happening to journalists around the world. So Alia wrote a piece about, it's called The Unsolved Assassination of a Journalist, and it is about a an attack um, against the editor of a paper called Rising Kashmir. Um, the editor's name is Shujat Bukhari. And set the stage for us about what that paper is and who he was. Sure. So, I mean, first of all, thank you for having me. Um, Shujat Bukhari is was one of the most prominent faces of journalism in Kashmir, which, as you know, has been a region that's been under conflict for many, many decades at this time. And Shujat was somebody who, you know, essentially grew up doing journalism, um, had a really distinguished career working for national publications, international publications. And at a certain point, he decided that he wanted to launch his own venture. And that was the Rising Kashmir. And, you know, over the years, Rising Kashmir has become one of the biggest newspapers in that region, in the valley. It's one of the most widely circulated, widely read. And it also has served as a training ground for a lot of up-and-coming journalists in the region. Um, so because of many of those things, Bukhari was one of the journalists whose faces was probably the most recognizable in Kashmir. So on the evening of June 14th, 2018, um, he, there were, it was outside of the offices of the newspaper, um, there were shots that rang out. People inside the paper didn't know what was going on. They didn't even know that, that it was gunfire. They thought it could have been something else. They thought it could have been fireworks. They went outside and... Um, what did they find? So one thing um, that's interesting about working in Srinagar is that many of the media houses are actually all clustered together. So basically, majority of the news organizations, newspapers, radios are all actually in one little square space um, in adjoining buildings. So when these shots rang out, essentially the majority of the media community heard them. And, you know, as they all kind of rushed outside to figure out what was going on, they found that Bukhari and his two bodyguards had been murdered um, as they had just gotten into his car. He had just left the office and was on his way, you know, to meet his family. He had been threatened before multiple times. Um, and what was astonishing to me was the 
immediately the the number of people who with motives was significant. Yeah. And I think what's actually interesting is that, you know, Bukhari, like you said, he faced a number of assassination attempts throughout his career um, and a lot of threats. But, you know, he's he's not an outlier Mm -hmm. um, in the journalist community. In fact, a lot of journalists who are working in the region, it's a really tense and difficult area to report from. And you're often under threat from a variety of factors. It can be the militant groups that are operating there. It can be national um, authorities who are also, you know, pressuring journalists to cover events in a certain type of way. Almost a year later, nobody knows who did it or who the perpetrators were. And it's really adding to the climate of fear because, quite frankly, um, like many of the journalists I spoke to on the ground said, it could have been anyone. Yeah. In fact, I mean, we'll get to this in a second, but I thought it was very chilling at the end of the piece. You wrote about you. You talked to other journalists who were like, I, you know, it's it's not worth it. Basically, I mean, you talked to people who were like, I'm not sure I even want to stay stay in the business. Talk to me about the broader climate for press freedom in India uh, under Prime Minister Modi. Yeah, so it's it's different from Kashmir for sure. Kashmir is kind of a unique. Um, region, of course, in India because it's been in conflict for so many years. But increasingly, I think what we've seen, what I've seen in my research reporting um, on India over the past few years is that the climate is definitely worsening for journalists. We're seeing increasingly, you know, an erosion of democratic values. So you see, you know, attacks against the press. Physical attacks have kind of always happened in Mm -hmm. India, unfortunately, but we're also seeing, you know, defamation suits widely used Mm -hmm. against journalists and news outlets that have had critical coverage of the ruling party. And you're talking now about India. I'm talking about India. Yes. Sorry. So increasingly in India is where we're seeing a further erosion of democratic values. And we're seeing defamation suits against journalists and news organizations that have been critical of the ruling party. Um, We're seeing journalists imprisoned um, because they've been critical of the ruling party. Um, And there's a variety of techniques. I mean, there's a number of unspoken things that go on, such as, you know, top editors being pushed out due to political pressure. I mean, the prime minister himself, you know, he has not been friendly to the press. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, never really answered questions in a press conference. Mm -hmm. Um, We're familiar with that here. Yeah. So, I mean, it's something you're seeing here as well. But it's, you know, he's coming at the tail and he's about to enter Um, We're about to see the elections happen again, but he managed to go his entire first term without really ever answering questions of the press. Yeah, it's it's interesting from our perch at CJR. Um, Whenever we write, we have a significant readership in India, and when we write stories about Trump that go into detail, we hear often from reporters in India who tell us, like, this stuff sounds very familiar, these tactics are very familiar, um, I mean, you actually work out of New York for for CPJ, but your your area of interest is is in that part of the world. How do you see the similarities? Well, I would say that it's often actually that you see comparisons between the Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the U.S. President Donald Trump. 
Um, Modi is somebody who's been in political office for much, much longer. And I would say that he's honed his tactics pretty well, pretty strategically, that he doesn't have to answer critical questions. The national media is um, essentially, you know, bowed to pressure in many areas. And those that haven't are facing a lot of pressure to do so. Mm-hmm. Um, so we are seeing a lot of, you know, similar rhetoric against the press. And I wouldn't be surprised, you know, that the U.S. president himself may be taking certain notes from the prime minister in India. Oh, that's interesting, because we often think about it going the other direction. The press here faces challenges, of course. Um, but the rhetoric that we're seeing here is being used and manipulated to much more dangerous degrees globally. Mm-hmm. Um, you take, you know, Duterte in the Philippines, right. uh, things like that. So we're increasingly concerned about what the rhetoric here means for journalists yeah. globally. Yeah. Um, that being said, yeah, it's certainly possible that Modi himself is taking some directives from Trump, but he's also been. Um, in political office, like I said, for many, many years, he's got a fine-tuned establishment behind him. And elections are coming up in India. Um, Yep. Starting tomorrow, actually. Starting tomorrow. Um, How's, I mean, in the U.S., I expect in 2020 that the role of the media and the sort of cries of fake news and the siloing of information is going to be, is really going to be central to this campaign Partly because that's my job is to think that and cover it. But is it as central in the public discussion in India? The role of the press? Yeah. Yes and no. So the press in India has a really vibrant history. And, you know, they are so diverse. I mean, we're talking about India having, first of all, a massive population, many, many states, many, many languages. Um, It's so diverse. But the press has had a really rich and vibrant history, and they've played a really crucial role for the country over the years. And that's why I think it's so scary and unfortunate that we're seeing an erosion of press freedom within the country. So, I mean, I think there is a big responsibility for the media there to kind of stand up for themselves and put pressure on politicians who, you know, are speaking out against them. Mm. Um, And we've seen it become a little bit of an election issue. The manifesto that, you know, the Congress party put out has some um, promises to uphold press freedom and um, some of the things that journalists have been campaigning for within the country. But again, there are so many issues. Disinformation is certainly going to be one. So let's get back to the Bukhari investigation. Um, you report, it's so intriguing because um, you, you really do document the status of the case, which is, so it's been um, almost nine months since his killing. Um, they still have his phones that they seized when, when, he, when he died. Um, there's been nobody, there's been no outline of any charges. Um, and then you then you have this like listing of these weird unanswered questions like how did these militants get into what was a heavily sort of policed and surveilled downtown area of where he was living? Um, 
where the, the, you know, the, the CCTV cameras were mysteriously not working or had been moved around the areas where this was happening. Obviously, super suspicious from a reader's point of view. Um, and there's one scene in the story that you write that that was that was chilling in which you sort of go to the police and try to get some answers from them and try to get them to answer some of this. Talk to me just about what that reporting was like and how you experienced the those officials when you sought to talk to them about this case. Were they were they blasé about it? Were they did they sense that this was a high profile thing that they were very stressed out about? Or what, how did you find them? So, in general, the reporting around this story was actually quite difficult. Um, there are a lot of journalists that we spoke to, dozens and dozens, and um, a lot of them were afraid for themselves, you know, and their own situation, given that they just lost a colleague, a friend, a mentor to many of them. In the process of having those conversations, though, some of the things that I outlined in terms of the things that are still being held by police still in custody Um, a lot of outstanding questions about how, you know, a region and a city that's so, so heavily surveilled and has such a vast security apparatus, you know, seems very conveniently to have failed at a very crucial moment. And a place where there are so many intelligence agencies operating, you know. um, Did did you go to the site of where he was gunned down? Yeah, um, because it's, like I said, it's in the press enclave. So that's right. essentially where majority, 90% of Srinagar's media works. So could you see the security cameras where, from where, could you see them from if you were standing at where the attack happened? You could look and see them physically? A few of them. So uh-huh. basically, like, where the press enclave is, there's a main road, and it's housed right next to um, this main shopping district. And then there's a little um, road that goes in, and then it opens up into this big square where basically all these buildings are housed. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you look around, yeah, you can definitely see some of the CCTV cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, others are definitely hidden. Um, but then and those I mean, are the cameras that on that day just weren't working. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about... so. Eventually, what the police had produced um, as evidence was one extremely blurry photo of the um, alleged perpetrators of the alleged militants um, fleeing on a motorcycle. But that also is taken from not directly there. You know, I spoke with many members of Shujat's family. I spoke with journalists. And essentially, the question is really how did the intelligence services fail to see an attack like this coming? Um, How were the perpetrators able to get away? We're talking about a really heavily populated part of town. Um, And the police, they're not stationed far away. So also, you know, the amount of time it took for them to arrive at the scene. Which was how much? 20 minutes. And how far physically from was the police station? We're talking about a few streets. Uh-huh. They, they did come up with, um, they came up with this special investigative team that that was assembled by the police. And they came up with a theory. And then the, um, then the people that were named in that theory died. So which um, you, you say was 
people who follow this found completely predictable. Oh, absolutely. So I think they're, they were very well aware that this was a really high-profile assassination. This is one of the most public assassinations that has happened in Kashmir in a decade of a civilian. Despite all of that, my conversations you know, with locals, with other journalists, they predicted exactly this outcome because it's something, quite fl- frankly, that they see so often. The initial suspects were said to be members of this militant group. Yeah, they were said to be members of the um, Lashkari Taiba. Right. And that and blaming those militants for crimes like not like this. This happens a lot. Happens very often. Right. Okay. The person who was killed eventually a few months later was Navid Jutt. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was someone that was a more prominent militant. He was somebody that had been very well known to the security establishment, somebody that had been on their radar for a long time. Um, what was the circumstance of his killing? It was an encounter killing. So again, essentially what happens is that police eventually identify where um, a militant is ho- holding up or where they are, and they kind of cordon off that area and a sh- in a shootout. Um, generally, that militant is killed. So he died before they had to actually present any detailed evidence of his involvement yeah. in this thing. In fact, you know, we're talking about, so I met with police back in September, and they, you know, made some promises that they were expecting to file a charge sheet soon. Um, we're talking about now nine months after Bukhari's murder. We still have not seen a charge sheet, and instead one of the initial suspects is dead. How long after you talked to them did he die? A couple months, a few months. And and were you, how concerned were you for your own safety in reporting the story? Um, As you talk to people in the journalism community, you are quite aware of how much surveillance goes on. And, you know, you worry about, you know, yourself, being able to protect your sources, being able to protect your information. In the context of reporting this, there's so many journalists that have been called in for questioning, so many journalists that have been detained for a few days. So yes and no. (laughs) There's obviously concerns. It would be naive to think that um, it's completely fine. And there's a lot of journalists that have trouble being able to report from Kashmir. We've had foreign journalists expelled from the region. Um, Would you feel nervous um, going back soon uh, after the publication of a piece like this? I won't lie a little bit, but also, you know, something we take pretty seriously at CPJ is like taking those risk factors in and um, the ramification of, of this is, you know, it's always at the whims of who's in power. If somebody wants to take issue with it, they certainly can, and they have the means to do so. But this piece, I really don't think it's anything that's provocative. At the most, you know, the purpose of it is to raise outstanding questions. What's been the response from both journalists in Kashmir and maybe um, the sort of official response maybe that would lead us to believe that this could have, you know, maybe make a difference in the outcome of the case? I think it's tough. It's only been a couple days since the piece has come out. Um, I think there's been appreciation that, you know, this case is being revisited. When we had the assassination of Gauri Lankesh. Mm -hmm. um, We wrote about that. Exactly. So that was another really high profile assassination. Mm. Um, 
but she's somebody who really was able to stay in the headlines mm-hmm. and largely because of who she was. Lots of factors go mm-hmm. into that. The situation can shift so quickly and you can take into account the way, for example, after the Poloma attack back in February, how quickly those national nationalist sentiments seep in. Um, in terms of getting movement from authorities, again, I mean, that's something we at CPJ are going to keep pressing for. And mm. this is not a case we're going to forget about. I think on a national level, they're very focused on elections right now. And that's the primary focus. But, you know, as soon as we have a new administration or whatever administration is um, set up, this is going to be a case. His, Gauri's, many of the other um, journalists who've been murdered for their work in India were going to keep pressing. Yeah. Aliyah, thanks for coming in. Thank you so it's much for having It's a terrific piece. Um, I recommend everybody read it. It's at cgr.org. It's called The Unsolved Assassination of a Journalist. Um, and it's a terrific read and a, and a great reporting effort. So thanks again. Thank you for for joining us this week on The Kicker. Um, Go to CGR.org to see everything that we're up to, as well as our site galley, um, where you can sort of chat with people and engage in what's going on in the news. And we'll see you next week. 